Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism, and welcome to my video on Pope St. Pius X's prophecy on the One World Church of Apostasy. And for those of you watching it on September 3rd, this is Pope St. Pius X's feast day, so I thought this would be an appropriate talk to post today. Uh, it also happens to be the first Saturday of the month, so for those of you who haven't uh, said the prayers to Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, uh, please remember to do so. I, I did post a video on that this morning that you'll find on my channel as well. Uh, in this video, I'm going to be presenting a talk that was given by the late Mr. John Venari, who was the editor of Catholic Family News. Uh, in this talk, he's going to be covering a letter that was written by Pope St. Pius X condemning a movement in France called the Sion, which was more or less... Uh, the foreshadowing or the beginning of the so-called spirit of Vatican II. And he'll obviously go into all that in a lot more detail. Uh, this talk, I don't know the exact date of when the talk was given, but it was given during uh, John Paul II's um, Novus Ordo reign. And you'll hear him talk about Cardinal Ratzinger. And for those of you who may be too young to know who that is, that would be the future Benedict, Benedict XVI just to put things in context and what these people were doing and saying at that time and how things have uh, progressed, or I guess I should say regressed, under Francis and how Pope St. Pius X foresaw all of this and what it would lead to and what this One World Church of Apostasy, what the purpose of it is. So... Also in the video, this is just audio only, right? That's how it, I, I purchased it from Mr. Venari. He didn't have a video of it. He'll speak to video clips of it uh, when you're going through it and you're listening to it. Uh, but I will post part of the Fatima sacrilege when Hindus were led into the Fatima shrine. I do have a video footage of that. It may not, it's not going to sync up exactly to what he's showing on the screen, but at least you'll be able to see to see it for yourself. Uh, and then the pieces of World Youth Day, I don't, I don't have that in particular, but really all you need to do is do a search for World Youth Day or um, the Steubenville conferences, and you can see all the uh, impurity, the irreverence and modesty that goes on that he's talking about. It's um, pretty self-explanatory. So uh, with that, let me turn it now over to Mr. John Venari. Uh, please also remember to hit the like and subscribe buttons, and uh, please subscribe to my other channels, and of course, please keep me in your prayers. Thank you. Well, as you know, I'm John Veneri, and um, the title of this talk is From Sion to the One World Church of Apostasy, and I'm going to be talking about a 19th century Catholic... Oops, oops, this is not supposed to be doing this. Yeah. That's a, a preview. You're going to see the Hindu ritual at Fatima. And you're also going to see glimpses of World Youth Day. It's all, it, it all, it's all part of the slick, glossy passage, package that was previewed in something called the Sion. And I'm going to talk about this 19th century Catholic movement in France, the Sion, spelled S-I-L-L-O-N. 
It was, as I said, as one, one priest called it, a slick and glossy package that set out with a new vision for the church in the modern world and a new vision for the church's relationship with false and man-made religions. Uh, it kind of embodied the modern liberal Catholic ideals. It, it, it embodied it more than any other single movement that is before the Second Vatican Council. I think uh, Cornelia Ferreira today will be talking to you about the one group that embodies this uh, since the Council called Focolare. So, the, but the Sion was a movement towards modern Catholicism, a, to, a movement towards synchronizing Catholicism with the modern world. We're going to see how Pope St. Pius X condemned it in his 1910 apostolic letter, and we'll also see that Pope St. Pius X's condemnation could have been written yesterday, because many of the bad ideas that are now part, that, that, that were the Sion, are part and parcel of the post-conciliar church. As I said yesterday, the conciliar and post-conciliar errors are not new. They're just given new labels. The theologians are not original. They're just repackaging old errors that have already been answered and condemned. The Sion means pharaoh, like a pharaoh that you would plow in a field. It was a youth movement in France in the late 19th century and the first decade of the 20th century. As I said, it was condemned by Pope St. Pius X on August 25, 1910, and it was Pope St. Pius X's magnificent letter, Our Apostolic Mandate. Uh, the Sion had false ideas regarding democracy, believing that all authority comes from the people. It had false ideas regarding human liberty, false ideas regarding what makes truly just and social order, false ideals, ideas regarding the church's relationship with false religions, and as we're going to see, the Sion had false ideas regarding human nature itself. It was chock full of dreamy notions to build a better world based on the inerrant goodness of man. It promoted a kind of interdenominational cooperation among religions in order to make the world, in order to make a more just and humane society. In other words, the Sion strove to promote a new pan-religious civilization of love. Uh, the Sion was kind of a clean-cut Catholic hippie movement in France. And to give an, oversimpl an oversimplistic idea of what the Sion was all about, there was a hippie song from the 60s that could have been the Sion's anthem. Do you remember? I think it's so groovy now that people are finally getting together. I think it's wonderful now that people are finally getting together. Right? Do you remember that? The sappy song that doesn't mean anything? This could have been the anthem of the Sion. Probably sounded better in French. Now, but as I said, they were clean cut. They were clean cut. They weren't dirty. And they weren't on drugs. But they were, but that doesn't mean that they weren't intoxicated. Because the Sionists were, the members of the Sion were in fact intoxicated with the two deadly influences that were rampant in the 19th century. The first was romanticism. This humanistic idealization and glorification of the goodness of natural man, that is man unaided by grace, which is the story of the 19th century Europe and 19th century United States, and we're still living through it. And the second was liberalism. That was the second deadly influence, or more precisely, liberal Catholicism. Again, big problem in the 19th century, that the church should come to terms with the modern world, that the modern world is good. The, the principles of the French Revolution are actually good and can be beneficial to the church if we just know how to manipulate it properly and that the church come to terms with these liberal social framework 
of naturalism that was the product of the French Revolution. Blessed Pius IX called liberal Catholics the worst enemies of the church. Gregory XVI condemned liberal Catholicism in Morarivos. I mean, everybody should read and memorize Morarivos. He nails, nails everything there. And Pius IX really condemned it all in his 1864 Syllabus of Errors. But despite these clear condemnations, the errors were kept alive, and the Sion is a glossy package that makes this liberalism appear attractive to Catholicism. So I'm going to quote the very beginning of Pope St. Pius X's letter, and as I said, it was a French problem at the time, so Pius X against the Sion was not even written in Latin, it was written in French. The original was written in French, and it was not addressed to the world's bishops, but it was addressed to the French bishops. But as I said today, what he condemned is now through the church worldwide. So here's how Pius X opens his letter against the Sion. Quote, Our apostolic mandate requires from us that we watch over the purity of the faith and the integrity of Catholic discipline. It requires from us that we protect the faithful from evil and error, especially so when evil and error are presented in dynamic language, which concealing vague notions and ambiguous expressions with emotional and high-sounding words is likely to set ablaze the hearts of men in the pursuit of ideals which, whilst attractive, are nonetheless nefarious, close quote. Now, if Dr. White, our professor of literature, were grading Pius X's paper here in English class, uh, I think, Pius, I think uh, Dr. White would give Pius X an A. And this is because Pius has done here what a good English teacher tells you that you must do, and that is you set out your major themes in your first paragraph. Right? And Pius has done this. First, he says, our apostolic mandate requires from us that we watch over the purity of the faith and the integrity of Catholic discipline, and we keep the flock from error, from the poison of error. See, this is the first duty of the Pope, is is not to travel the world, is to watch over the purity of the faith, to watch over the integrity of Catholic discipline, and if doctrine and discipline are threatened, then the Pope must take action. He must take effective action to restore the integrity of doctrine and discipline. And if the Pope does not do this, then what from what Pius X himself says elsewhere when he opened his 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 encyclical against modernism, he said, if I do not take effective action, I will fail in my primary duty, which shows it is possible for the Pope to fail. Now, the next major theme is, what are the errors of the Sionists that Pius is going to be going after. Well, what he does here is he describes the nature of the evil he's fighting without actually giving us specifics. He says that he's going to condemn evil and error that are presented in dynamic language, which are full of vague notions and ambiguous expressions that contain emotional and high-sounding words that can very easily set ablaze the hearts of men in the pursuit of ideals whilst attractive are nonetheless nefarious. And he goes on to say, in the section that I didn't read to you, he goes on to say right after that, that these ideas are the nefarious philosophies of the French Revolution. In other words, Masonic philosophies. But notice his words. He says that these dreamy notions set ablaze the hearts of men. Now, I'm telling you, this is key to the Sion right here. Key. To set ablaze the heart. This means that the Sion is all the more dangerous because it does not 
first and foremost appeal to the mind. It does not first and foremost appeal to the intellect. It appeals to the heart. It is dreamy, seemingly beautiful words that when we hear them make us say, oh, wow, that's like so deep. (laughs) It's what it does to us. These errors are going to get into us through the heart, through the emotions, through sentiment, not through the mind. And it is an error that is tailor-made for our sentimental modern age that is drenched in romanticism and drenched in liberalism. When the Sion talks, Pius says, tells us, we're going to like it. And it's going to fill us with warm and fuzzies. And it's going to fill us with the desire to embrace all of humanity and to make a better world and skipping across the threshold of hope. But it's actually a nefarious ideas from the dark workshops of Freemasonry. That's what he says. He talks about the dark workshops. So the Sion was founded in 1894 by a Frenchman named Marc Sanier, S-A-N-G-N-I-E-R, Sanier. And we're going to take a few moments to get to know Mr. Sanier because, or I should say Monsieur Sanier, because by reading his words, we'll understand what the movement is, is really all about. It, he kind of, it, it kind of uh, gives a, uh, it fills out what Pius X is talking about. And I'm taking this information from a French book called L'Église Occupée, uh, the, uh, the Church Occupied, that was translated by a priest friend of mine. So Marc Sangier founded the Sion in 1894. Uh, Sangier was one of a group of students in specialized mathematics at a university in France. Uh, they were studying these exact sciences, but they still wanted more. Here's what Sangier writes. He says, we couldn't make up our minds to live in this overheated atmosphere of mathematics with as our only ideal, the compass and the tangent of the polytechnicians, that is the expert mathematicians. We needed a little more breathable air. We needed a human ideal. We needed life. So Sanyer said they requested and obtained permission to hold every Friday from midday to one during the great, during the great recreation, free meetings and free discussions amongst the students. And these meetings, he said, I mean, they, they brought about a revolution in the college within a few months. He writes, one day, We even had the audacity to bring in, in order to speak to us about the social question, a young workman from Lille. We carried him on our shoulders in triumph, students and workers. So this is how the Sion began. We see that this is is a romantic love of the working class. What's really happening here, it's kind of a guilt complex of these middle class students for being middle class. So they reach out. They invite the worker to come in, and they carry him in in triumph. All right? Now, there's nothing wrong with showing respect to workmen, but you can see this is an overemphasis. They reach out in order to show that they're not above the workmen. They don't consider themselves above them. I mean, they did everything but quote Bill Clinton. Yeah, I'll feel your pain. You know, <laughs> everything but. Now, this pseudo-egalitarian even extended to Sanye when he was in the military service. He actually regretted that his officers' insignia separated him in some way from the soldiers. So he organized rap sessions while he was in the service on the army and democracy. Right? Oh, there's more to that. It's wild. So anyway, in January 1894, Sanye launched his magazine called The Pharaoh, the Sion. It only ends up with about 3,000 subscribers, but this little magazine has a big impact, and it's, it's part of a movement. And Sanier says, 
We are aware that we need, by mixing in with our age, to come to love it first of all, despite, but above all, because of its troubles and its miseries. Close quote. Now, leaving that just there, that's kind of a dangerous way of talking. Is he loving the modern age the way you would love a sick child? That special compassion that would make you want to, to pull out all the stops and make the child better, nurse the child back to, to life? Or does he love the miseries of the age itself? Does he love the modern errors? Well, it seems that he does, as we'll see. But key here is that what we see already, this is a foreshadowing of the Vatican II Church, this need to mix in with the age. You remember the priests in the 1960s, right after the council, involvement. It was the in thing to do, to go down into the inner cities and to go down with the blacks and down with the Chicanos and down with the poor and you don't stay in rectories and you're right where with them, making a difference. And uh, we saw the same thing earlier. The Sion's principles were coming back in the French uh, worker-priest movement. Again, the priests going into the workplace, mixing with the age. We see it in liberty. We see this repackage coming back again in liberation theology. See, this is, this is the, where it came from. It came from the Sionist idea. And the man, the priest, poor priest who did this, lost the faith, oftentimes left the priesthood, and many of them brought in socialism and communism in the process which Pius X predicted, as we'll see. Um, um, I remember Malachi Martin and the Jesuits said that the, 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 the worker-priest movement, uh, France did not, um, the people of France did not benefit at all from that, except a few French women who gained husbands. So. Now, youngsters in France, so youngsters of France set out with these dreamy notions. I should say to here, too, if you read uh, the Pius X's uh, apostolic letter, he uses the word dream or dreamy or dreamers at least nine times. I mean, this is a dream, okay? But it's the new church. So youngsters in France set out on these dreamy principles to change the future, to make a better world. But these youngsters are not grounded in solid theology. They're not grounded in solid philosophy, not the philosophy of St. Thomas. No, they move forward with hearts full of love and trust and hope, all right? Now, on this point, the author of Eglise Occupée commented, he said, the ignorance of principles of the first members of Sion even extends to religion. Not that they despise religion, but since they only thought religion as as a kind of spirit, they unconsciously reduce religion to a kind of interior exaltation. It's It's religion as sentiment. It's a religion that fills me with warmth. As one priest says, it's the nice, gooey feeling. Nice, gooey feeling. So religion is good. It makes me feel good. It makes me want to love others and help others. But, it's not a, but, it, but religion is not a structure of dogma and truth for the mind. Religion is a movement of, of the heart. And that's why Pope St. Pius, Pius X said that he was going to go after high-sounding language that inflames, that set the heart ablaze. Now, Sanier wrote stories full of symbolic persons, such as the poor log cutter named Plebs and the brave young man named Light. He would have fit in at World Youth Day. They were said to be charming, written with a slightly worrying warmth, and these symbolic creatures, and this is a quote, needed to feed on living souls, and who, jealous of all love, would have liked to embrace with all the arms and give the kisses on all the lips. (laughs) You can see, though, what does this nice, gooey, 
feeling, religious feeling produce? Sensuality. Sensuality. And this is something that I come across, I've come across when I would cover the charismatic meetings. When I go to World Youth Day, what do you see? You see all these young people, lots of happiness, lots of hugs, dancing to this Christian rock in a very sensual way. Nice, gooey, feeling religion is a recipe for sensuality. And this is what the, the today's Vatican is giving, promoting to our young people. And also, same thing with Steubenville. Um, Mark Sagnier's prose was said to be like the soul of Lumen. That is, it is at the same time voluptuous and chaste. Figure that one out. Um, it's kind of, but we see it. He's a product of the age. It's like those voluptuous angels that were part of the 19th century romanticism. He's, he's embodying the age here, Sagnier is. Spirituality and sensuality together. It's a package that sells, believe me. And this came across from the members of the Sion itself. To express this overflow of feelings, these young men in the Sion would refer to each other as my Peter, my Paul, my David, my Charles. And this, the commentator said that these young men were merely following the example of their leader, Mark Sangier, who spoke to his followers in the same way, my James, my Antoine, my Jack. And the commentator further says that Sanier, quote, used to be seen in the school walking in the courtyard surrounded by pupils whom he embraced tenderly around the neck or around the soldiers, drawing them toward him with an ecstatic air. It's just creepy. I mean, the only, you know, the only Jack I draw towards me with an ecstatic air is a bottle of Jack Daniels. But, <laughs> But we can see what's happening here. It's the spirituality and sensuality. Now, there's no evidence that Sanyer had what we could call today a questionable orientation. No evidence of that at all. But it's a recipe for it. It's not too hard to understand why the modern church is awash in it. This spirituality and sensuality is a dangerous mix. It's an ambiguous romanticism sprinkled with mysticism, Today, as I said, we call them charismatics. Now, Sanger was called a new messiah during this period by the people who loved him. And to give you an idea of how much this movement was simply relying on good feelings and positive movements of the heart and not solid Catholic principles or even Aristotelian principles, here's what Mark Sanger said in 1904. He said, quote, when people rebuke us for the lack of precise statements that can up till now be drawn out of the efforts of our friends, people forget that this lack of precise statements is perhaps the best guarantee of the scientific honesty of our method. Close quote. See, it shows how sincere we are. We're not getting bogged down with precise statements and dogmatic formula, but we're following our hearts that are full of love and hope and enthusiasm for the for modern men of our age. And this is the best guarantee of the scientific honesty of our method. You see what they're doing here? It's directly renouncing reason. It's madness. You can't start with the heart. What does the catechism say? When we're this high, we learn God made us to know him, love him, and serve him in this world, to be happy with us forever, to be happy with him forever in the next. See, we, we, we have to start with the truth. We have to start with truth and principles for the mind. And once we know the truth, we come to love it, 
And once we love it, then we serve, not through a grudging certitude, oh, I've got to go do this or I'm going to go to hell, but we do it, as, as Ed Faust was saying, out of love of God, you know, because, because we, in, in prayer, we hear Our Lady say to us, do you know how much you hurt your father? See? So the principles to, from the mind, for the mind have to come first. They're flat-out rejected principles, rejected reason. They're just going to follow their hearts. Besides, Senor says, we don't know where we're going. That's a quote. Now, who wants to follow a leader who doesn't know where he's going? Yet this, this is precisely the case with the post-conciliar church. Cardinal Ratzinger said a few years ago, it was about 11 years ago, I think, about 11 years ago, he said the following about ecumenism and interreligious dialogue. He says, quote, The end of all ecumenical effort is to attain the true unity of the church. For the moment... I wouldn't dare venture to suggest any concrete realization, possible or imaginable, of this future church. We are at an intermediate stage of unity in diversity. Close quote. Oh, wow. It's like so deep. This is what we get. This is what we're getting from our post-conciliar churchmen. So almost 100 years after saying here, Cardinal Ratzinger is saying, likewise, we don't know where we're going. But as we're going to see, Pius X knows exactly where they're going, and he's going to tell us. So we're going to move on to a very quick treatment of Pius X's letter against the Sion, and my focus is going to be the Sion's promotion of interdenominational cooperation and the Sion's exaltation of sentiment. But there's a lot more to the Sion's and to the Sion's errors, especially the Sion's love of democracy and their exaltation of democracy as the be-all and the end-all of all things. And I'm just going to cover this issue of democracy very quickly because you're going to get a talk tomorrow from Tom Jolesky on the kingship of Christ, and I know he's going to cover these things more extensively. But very quickly, the Sion held on to the fanciful dream of forging an alliance between Catholicism and the principles of 1789, that is, Masonic principles. And the main tenet of these Masonic principles is what Father Dennis Fahey called the pantheistic deification of man. In other words, man himself is the sole arbiter of what is good and bad, right or wrong, moral or immoral. Man decides for himself and is not really bound to listen to any moral authority, especially the Catholic Church founded by Jesus Christ. Man is supreme. This means that man is considered free from any real or objective obligation towards our Lord Jesus Christ. Man has the complete liberty to accept and to practice any religion he chooses, or no religion at all. It's all my decision. Man is also free to say, to write, to print, to publish anything he pleases without any reference to a morality which takes God into consideration. This is why Gregory XVI called an abominable error, the, the monstrous error, the idea of freedom of the press, to give free reign to error. But this is complete liberty. So then, this exaltation of man's has repercussions in society because then the only way that we can make laws and establish rules of government is for the body of men at any given time to agree on what's good or bad or moral or immoral or legal or illegal. And since you will never get every single person to agree on every single point, then we have to abide by a majority opinion, a general consensus. We have to go by what, what most people want. This is liberal democracy. It's born from the Masonic idea that man is supreme 
and is not morally obliged to answer to God in any way, and that the will of the majority of men is then the most supreme. And this is why people worship democracy. And it's a lie anyway. We got abortion legalized not by a vote, but by a Supreme Court who couldn't be removed. Now, the popes have always forbidden this false democracy because all of mankind, not just Catholics, all of mankind is bound to live by the moral law established by Christ. No one has the moral right to, to ignore this law. So this, in brief, is the social kingship of Jesus Christ. The states and governments and social institutions would recognize God and Jesus Christ as king and ruler of all, and the states and governments and social institutions will base their laws on what the gospel teaches is right and wrong and on what the church teaches is right and wrong. But democracy says no. If, if the majority want legalized divorce, forbidden by God, then we have to have legalized divorce. If the majority want legalized contraception, forbidden by God, then we have to have legalized contraception. Okay, so you get the idea. Now, Pius X, quoting his predecessors, says that the church does not forbid a kind of democracy which allows people to choose their leaders, their presidents and politicians, by means of national suffrage, in other words, by vote. But the Pope stress, and Pope St. Pius X stresses in his apostolic letter, that it is an error to believe that people invest the leader with the authority, that the all authority comes from the people. Now, this is something the Sion believed. No, Scripture tells us all power comes from God. All authority comes from God. The people may choose the leader, if, it is, if, if, if the country is set up that way, for voting, but it is God who invests the leader with, this, with authority. This is something similar we see on a much higher level with papal elections. The cardinals choose the man, and then God invests the pope with the authority. The power to govern the church and to rule in Christ's name does not from the card, come from the cardinals giving it to the pope. The power, they choose the man, and the power comes from God to invest him with authority. And in not so sublime matter, the people choose their national leaders, and then God invests the leader with authority. Now, the Sion took liberal democracy one step further, and this is where they really get dreamy. They so much believed in the goodness of man that they wanted more and more of an equality between the ruler and the ruled, wherein we could almost do away with authority if just enough people knew the right thing. It's hippies. It's Woodstock. They envisioned a social makeup wherein everybody would learn his duties, what, they, what the duties are as, as a citizen, and once they learned the right thing, they would just do the right thing. Because man is so good, and man's love of his fellow man is so sublime, that he will always place the good of the whole above, the good for him, above, above his personal good. And Pius X says of the Sion, we got a taste of this last night with Dr. White, but um, uh, Pius X says of the Sion, according to them, man will be truly worthy of the name only when he has acquired a strong, enlightened, and independent conscience, consciousness, able to do without a master, obeying only himself, and able to assume the most demanding responsibilities without faltering. Close quote. And Pius X says... These are the big words by which human pride is exalted, like the dream carrying man away without lights, without guidance, and without help into the realm of illusion in which he will be destroyed by his errors and passions while awaiting the glorious day of his full consciousness. Because Pius X says right after this, when is this glorious day going to come? It's not going to come. 
because Pius X explains the principles of the Sion could never be lived unless you can change human nature. You can change fallen human nature, which the Sion can't do, which God himself doesn't do. He elevates our nature through grace, but he doesn't change it. Probably the most beautiful thing in the world is the soul of a two-year-old, but their fallen human nature is still there. I have one. Um, <laughs> well, he's almost two. Now, nonetheless, Sion believed that democracy alone, democracy alone will bring about perfect social justice. This, of course, too, is contrary to Catholic teaching because the church never mandates or says there's only one rule of government that the church allows aristocracy, a true democracy, and, um, and monarchy. So it shouldn't surprise us, then, that in light of this exaltation of democracy, 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 there were two essential bedside books of the Sionists. The first one I can't remember because it has a French name. But the second was a book. This is a movement in France. The second was a, a book by Bishop Ireland of the United States. And Ireland was a rapid Americanist, and always, if, if, if you read the writings of the turn of the century, they're just gagging, always preaching the greatness of democracy. Americanism and Sionism has to have a lot in common, but that's, that's reason for another talk. Now, in 1904, Mark Sangier announced that he was forming what he called a greater Sion that was to be, not to be comprised of Catholics only, but an interdenominational co-op which was comprised of members of all religion and of no religion. An organization will, that will embrace all men united under these new ideals. And I need to state here, too, that when Pius X goes after the members of the Sion, it's very interesting. He never, goes, he never treats them as calculating enemies of the church. He says they're good men. They're well-intentioned. They're willing to sacrifice themselves to, 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 to the point of exhaustion to achieve their ideals. The problem is that they think they found a new Catholic solution which is not Catholic, and it's no solution. So at this point, I'm going to quote Pius X himself, and you're going to see that this apostolic letter, as I said, could have been written yesterday. It accurately describes the spirit and the practice of the post-conciliar church. Pius X says, There was a time when the Sion as such was truly Catholic. It recognized but one moral force, Catholicism, and the Sionists were wont to proclaim that democracy would have to be Catholic or not exist at all. A time came when they changed their minds. They left each one to his religion or philosophy. They ceased to call themselves Catholic, and for the formula democracy will be Catholic, they substituted democracy will not be anti-Catholic any more than it will be anti-Jewish or anti-Buddhist. So in other words, the Sion, for the sake of what they considered a greater unity, a greater good, would not oppose religious error, would not try to convert non-Catholics to the one true church necessary for salvation. In fact, Sangier encouraged members of false religions to study their religion, to become firm in it, because that will give them the principles and the, and the fuel they need to be good, to, to be good members of this great, um, this great society of man. Pius continues, this, there was, this was the time of the great Sion. For the construction of the future city, they appealed to the workers of all religions and sects, S-E-C-T-S. These were asked but one thing, to share the same social I ideal, to respect all creeds, and to bring with them a certain supply of moral force. The moral force is going to come from your Buddhism, Mr. Buddhist, and your Protestantism, Mr. Protestant. 
Accordingly, they ask all those who want to change today's society in the direction of democracy not to oppose each other on account of the philosophical or religious convictions which may separate them, but to march hand in hand, not renouncing their convictions, but trying to provide on the ground of practical realities the proof of the excellence of their personal convictions. Perhaps a union will be affected on this ground of emulation between souls holding different religious or philosophical convictions. Close quote. Now, I'm sure you can all see it. This is precisely the spirit of Assisi. This is exactly the spirit of Assisi. It's an interdenominational co-op of members of all of various religions placed on the same level in order to lock arms with one another in prayer, in solidarity, in, in order to work to make the world a better place, and showing the world, and this is why John Paul II does it publicly, show, he has these public ceremonies with all these religions saying to the world leaders, look how good we are, look how sincere we are, look how much we want to build a better society by working together if you would only listen. This is the spirit of Assisi showing the good fruits of the inner conviction of religion, just a code word, just a, an umbrella word, religion. But as Monsignor Fenton, Joseph Clifford Fenton from the United States points out on, on, on this type of thing, the minute you do this, the minute you do this, you have implicitly accepted religious indifferentism. The minute you establish this pan-religious co-op, along with Catholics, to build a better world, you're implicitly saying that these false religions have the moral right to exist and to spread their errors. And you're also saying implicitly that these false religions are good enough for salvation. So we don't have to deal with converting non-Catholics. We don't have to deal with any of that. In their own way, they're on their own road to salvation. It's all implicit. It's inescapable from the Sion and the spirit of Assisi when you have this formal recognition of false religions. And it is an idea that is condemned, stands condemned by the church, not only by the De Fide teaching outside the church there's no salvation, but Pope Gregory XVI in Moravos called this religious indifferentism a wicked opinion and a most deplorable error because it rejects, he says, the scriptural truth that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And this error of religious indifferentism, as I said, implicit in the Sion, and implicit in its offspring, which is today. So getting back to Pius X, <clears throat> here's what he said. He said, here we have, founded by Catholics, an interdenominational association that is to work for the reform of civilization, an undertaking which is above all religious in character. In one sentence, he nails it. He explains the absurdity of it all. He says, but there is no true civilization without a moral civilization. And there is no true moral civilization without the true religion. It is a proven truth. It is an historical fact. And it dismisses the idea that you can just play this down for the sake of dealing with practical realities, as Sion calls them. Pius goes on to say, what must be thought of the promiscuity in which young Catholics will be caught up with heterodox and unbelieving folk in a work of this nature? What are we to think of this respect of all errors and of the strange invitation made by a Catholic to all the dissidents to strengthen their convictions through the study, that is, their own religious study of their own religion, their own, so that they may bring, <clears throat> they may have, <clears throat> excuse me, can I have a glass of water, please, from someone? That they may, they may have more and more abundant sources of fresh forces. 
Now, Gregory the Sixteenth, they're saying, basically, implicit is, learn your errors and live them. <laughs> okay. And Gregory the Sixteenth said that the greatest tragedy that can befall society is freedom for error, because it is heretical ideas in the objective order that send souls to hell. He who does not keep the Catholic faith whole and inviolate cannot be saved, says the Athanasian Creed. And Gregory the Sixteenth. Uh, quotes the Athanas- this part of the Athanasian Creed when he's going against religious indifferentism. <clears throat> Thank you very much. Pius is not done yet. He says, <clears throat> What are we to think of an association to which all religions and even three thought, thought may express themselves openly in complete freedom? For the see on us who in public lectures and elsewhere proudly proclaim their personal faith, hey, I'm a Catholic, but they certainly do not intend to silence others, nor do they intend to prevent a Protestant from asserting his Protestantism or the skeptic from affirming his skepticism, or as we're going to see here, Rector Guerra and Fatima, we're not going to stop the the Hindus from asserting their Hinduism. We're going to give them the Catholic altar in the shrine so they can have their Hindu ceremony for peace. Sionism. Now, we can also see the Sionism reflected at the pan-religious meeting at Assisi. Pope John Paul II, in front of the various religions in the 1986 Assisi meeting, expressed, in front of all of them, his personal belief in the centrality of Jesus Christ. And all these Catholics thought this was so brave and so wonderful. Even Father Joseph Bissig, who at the time was the superior general of the Fraternity of St. Peter, um, he, in, ni- in a 1999 interview, he defended Assisi by claiming, well, Pope John Paul II, in front of all those religions, publicly expressed his belief in Jesus Christ. And here, Father Joseph Bissig, who was trained by Archbishop Lefebvre and should know better, uh, pa- he should, Bissig should know that here, Pope John Paul II was merely acting as a Sionist. He called a pan-religious prayer gathering for peace, including members of heretical groups and snake worshipers, infidels, pagan religions, and then in their midst, he expressed his personal belief in Jesus Christ. His exact words were, I humbly repeat here my own conviction, peace bears the name of Jesus Christ. Close quote. But as with the Sionists, he will not prevent the Protestants from asserting their Protestantism or any of the false religions from asserting their false religious creeds. And as with the CNS, I didn't bring the quote with me, in the 1999 pan-religious uh, regathering of Assisi, they had this manifesto where they were calling upon religions to dig into their religious traditions, learn their religion, in order to get the moral force we need to make a better society. It's the Sion. It was condemned in 1910. Later on, Pius X goes after this new pan-religious civilization of love. He almost uses the words in this way. He says, but stranger still, alarming and saddening at the same time are the audacity and the frivolity of men who call themselves Catholic and dream, that word again, dream of reshaping society under such conditions and of establishing on earth over and beyond the pale of the Catholic Church the reign of justice, the reign of love and justice. He has that in quotes. With workers coming from everywhere of all religions and of no religion. It's like the end of a Rogers and Hammerstein movie. You know, everybody coming together and singing the finale. Members of all religions and no religions, with or without belief, so long as they forego what divides them. 
their, their religious and philosophical convictions, and as long as they share with what unites them, a generous idealism and a moral force is drawn from whence they can. Then Pius X says, and this is terrific, he says, when we consider the forces, <clears throat> knowledge, and supernatural virtues which are necessary to establish the Christian city, and the suffering of the millions of martyrs, and the light given by the fathers and the doctors of the church, and the self-sacrifice of all the heroes of charity, and a powerful hierarchy ordained in heaven, and the streams of divine grace, the whole being built up, bound together, and impregnated by the life and spirit of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, the word made man. In other words, he's saying, look at the structure we have already. The saints, the martyrs, the doctors of the church, the hierarchy of the church, and the streams of grace coming from God himself. When we consider all this, I say, it is frightening to behold new apostles eagerly attempting to do better by a common interchange of vague idealism and civic virtue. What are they going to produce? What's going to come of this collaboration? a mere verbal and chimerical construction in which we shall see glowing in a jumble and in seductive confusion, again, it's going to look good, seductive confusion, the words liberty, justice, fraternity, love, equality, and human exaltation, all resting upon an ill-understood human dignity. It will be a tumultuous agitation, sterile for the end proposed. In other words, he's saying it's not going to work but which will benefit the less utopian explorers of the people. Yes, we can truly say that the Sion, its eyes fixed on the chimera, brings socialism in its train. And that's what I said earlier, the whole worker-priest movement, liberation theology, it all brings in socialism and communism. He predicted it in 1910. We fear that worse is, is to come. The end result of this developing promiscuousness, the beneficiary of the cosmopolitan of social action, can only be a democracy which will be neither Catholic nor Protestant nor Jewish. It will be a religion more universal than the Catholic Church, uniting all men to become brothers and comrades, key word, comrade, brothers and comrades at last in the kingdom of God. Now, this is almost exactly what I heard last year October, when I was at the Fatima Interreligious Congress from Father Jacques Dupuy. He said in his speech that all the members of all religions are positively willed by God and that they are all equal partners in the kingdom of God. Of course, Dupuy didn't use the word kingdom because that's a male sexist term. He used the term reign. His entire talk, he said reign of God. He never used any, everything was gender neutral. He said children of God instead of sons of God, that type of thing. But yet, this is what, what Dupuy was, was promoting is precisely what Pius X condemned. But Dupuy's statements was not condemned by the Fatima authorities, but they were applauded by Shrine Rector Guara, by the Bishop of Fatima, by the Cardinal Patriarch of Lisbon, by the Apostolic Delegate of Portugal, and by Archbishop, Archbishop Michael Fitzgerald from the Vatican. And when we stand up and oppose this error, we're gunned down by EWTN, by Father Robert J. Fox, by Timothy Tyndall Robertson, by all these people who, as Chris Ferreira says, are the greatest friends the revolution has. They, they're enabling the, the, the revolution. Pius X goes on to tell us where the Sion is headed. He says that the Sion is, quote, now no more than a miserable affluent of the great movement of apostasy being organized in every country 
for the establishment of a one-world church. He said it in 1910. For the establishment of a one-world church, which will have neither dogmas, nor hierarchy, nor discipline for the mind, nor curve for the passion, and which, under the pretext of freedom and human dignity, dignitatis humanae, would bring back to the world the reign of legalized cunning and force and the oppression of the weak and of those who toil and suffer, we know only too well the dark workshops in which are these in which are elaborated these mischievous doctrines which ought not to seduce clear thinking Catholics. We see that. Pope St. Pius X knows exactly where they're going. Sangier, Mark Sangier says, we don't know where we're going. Cardinal Ratzinger says, oh, we don't know what this future church is going to look like. We don't know where we're going. Okay? Pius X knew exactly where it was going. It was headed toward a one-world church of apostasy, and this one-world church of apostasy is the product of the dark workshops of Freemasonry, of secret societies. So it's no wonder, then, that the French, that the French Freemason, Yves Marcedon, said, quote, one can say that ecumenism is the legitimate son of Freemasonry. It's the product of this dark, and the product of, the, of this dark, of these dark workshops is heading towards a one world church, and that is why the new Vatican II religion appears to be something other than Catholic, <laughs> because it is. Uh, drawing upon the belief that men of all religions and all men of goodwill should work together to make a better world, Gaudium et Spes, Calling upon the right of all religions to exercise their false creed in public, dignitatis humani, these are all Vatican II documents, and calling upon an ecumenical collaboration among all religions, decree on ecumenism, it's all the result of false Masonic principles, philosophies, entering the church, but given a Christian veneer. And again, this is why the same Freemason, Yves Marcedon, elsewhere praised the ecumenism that was nurtured at Vatican II. He said, Catholics must not forget that all roads lead to God, and they will have to accept that this courageous idea of free thinking, which we can really call a revolution, pouring forth from our Masonic lodges, from the dark workshops, pouring forth from our Masonic lodges, has spread magnificently over the dome of St. Peter's. Freemasons see it. And this is, this, this is what we're up against. And our church leaders have allowed themselves to be imbued with these false doctrines. And also, only men who accept these doctrines at, the, at, at present are going to have any chance of elevating into the ranks of the hierarchy. Only those who accept these principles are going to be promoted. Uh, but they're the same as the leaders of the Sion. The leaders of the Sion, Pius X said, have not been able to guard against these doctrines. The exaltation of their sentiments, the undiscriminate goodwill of their hearts, their philosophical mix, mysticism mixed with a measure of Illuminism, in other words, Freemasonry, in other words, Satanism, have carried them away toward another gospel which they thought was the true gospel of our Savior. So in this closed course, so this is why we have a counterfeit Catholicism come from the highest leaders of the church. They've allowed themselves to be carried towards this new gospel, all the while professing it to be the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a new gospel disguised as the true gospel. And of this future city, based on these new principles, this is a famous quote, Pius X said, No, venerable brethren, we must repeat with utmost urgency in these times of social and intellectual anarchy, when everybody takes it upon himself to teach as a teacher and a lawmaker, the city cannot be built. He's exasperated. You can hear, the city cannot be built otherwise than as God has built it. 
Society cannot be set up unless the church lays the foundation and the supervises the work. No, civilization is not something yet to be found, nor is the new city to be built on hazy notions. It has been in existence, and it still is. It is Christian civilization. It is the Catholic city. It only has to be set up and restored continuously against the unremitting, that is, never-ending, unremitting attacks of insane dreamers, rebels, and miscreants. Close quote. Dreamer, dreamer, dreamer. Dream, dreamer. It's, you know, it's, it's, you can see what he's, what he's, he, 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 and it's kind of like what Ed Faust was talking about, too. You can't argue with these people because it's all dream. It's all, it's all, they don't argue from principle. It's, it's, it's like trying to nail jello to a wall. You know? <laughs> now, when Pius condemned the Sion, Mark Sangier, he did, he outwardly submitted. But the spirit of the Sion had already spread throughout the clergy, especially through the seminaries, because it was the in thing. And this was also the time of the agitation of modernism. And Action Francaise, in their magazine in 1908, reported that the Sionists had a group, had already formed a group in a certain seminary. And this group, says a priest who was at the seminary, who they interviewed, this group was very influential. They circulated the Sionist magazine among the seminarians despite the express prohibition of the rector. The same took place in other seminaries, so that even after the Sion was condemned, the ideas of the Sion were kept alive, underground, and these ideas surfaced at the time of the council from bishops and cardinals who would have been seminarians around the time of the heyday of the Sion and would have come to embrace its ideas. One admirer of Mark Sangier was a churchman whom you all know, a, church, a, a churchman named Angelo Cardinal Roncalli. And in a letter to the widow of Mark Sangier, Roncalli, this is when he was apostolic delegate to France, he said, quote, the powerful fascination of Sangier's words, his spirit had enchanted me. And from my early years as a priest, I maintained a vivid memory of his personality, his political and social activity, close quote. And of course, Roncalli would go on to become John XXIII, the man who launched the Second Vatican Council and the New Springtime. Um, another admirer of Mark Sangier was a man named Cardinal Cartagen in Belgium. And I want to read an excerpt from an article, and we're going to get to the film after this. I want to read an excerpt from an article by a man named Stephen Gizaz, who works with the international young Christian movements. And here we see, now this man is not a traditionalist, this man is a progressivist, and he's overjoyed that the principles of the Sion have come to fruition through the Second Vatican Council. He says, as I researched further, it became clear that Cartagen continued throughout his life to use certain key phrases that were touchwords, even code words, for the Sion. The most important example of this is found in the Sion's definition of democracy as, quote, the system of social organization that maximizes the civic consciousness and responsibility of each person. In other words, the individual learn me and he becomes autonomous, just doing the right thing. The code words conscience and responsible, I know, therefore I do, because I'm wonderful, I know, therefore I do, the codes conscious and responsible, thus became a trademark of the Sion in much the same way as contemplation and action had become a trademark for the Jesuits. From the time of his 1921 welcome to Mark Sangier, Father Cartagen welcomed Mark Sangier to this, to this uh, dinner that, where Sangier was honored in 1921. Cartesian never ceased to refer back to this definition. The words conscious and responsible appear together in different ways in Cartesian's major keynote, 
keynotes, including the first International Congress of the Lay Apostolate in 1951, and also in his three speeches at the Second Vatican Council. He also goes on to say that these code words ended up or can be found in the two encyclicals by John XXIII, Mater et Magistre and uh, Pacem in Terris in 63. Then he says, I found that these same terms also appeared in several of the key documents adopted at the first session of Vatican II in 1965, in which Cartagen participated as a council father. These documents included Gaudium et Spes, the Church in the Modern World, Apostolicum Actusitatum, lay apostolate, Agentis, missionary activity, and Dignitatis Humani, the document on religious freedom. The opening lines of the latter document read as follows, quote, a sense of the dignity of the human person, this is Vatican II document, a sense of the dignity of the human person has been impressing itself more and more deeply on the consciousness of contemporary man. And the demand is increasingly made that men should act on their own judgment, enjoying and making use of a responsible freedom, not driven by coercion, but motivated by a sense of duty. This is Sionism. Significantly, he says, Dignitatis Humani was one of the documents of which Cartagen's friend and ally, Monsignor Pavin, had been a principal drafter. Pavin also was the main drafter of the two encyclicals of John the Twenty-Third I mentioned earlier, Moderate Magistrate and Pachimateris. And here's a key point. In effect, he said, Cartagen and Pavin had succeeded in embedding the Sion definition of democracy at the heart of several Vatican II concepts, such as religious freedom, the role of the lay people, the mission of the church in the modern world, and even the missionary activities of the church. It was an incredible achievement, he said, especially given the fact that 50 years earlier, Pope Pius X had explicitly condemned the Sion's notion of democracy in the letter to the French bishops that resulted in its closure. It's no surprise that since the Council, many traditionalists have continued to attack these phrases for being heretical. Close quote. At least he's honest. Now, it's not Archbishop Lefebvre saying this, even though Lefebvre talks the same way. And he, and, he, and he talks about Cardinal Cartagen as being a conduit for, the, for, for Sionism. No, this is an admirer of the Sion, an admirer of the Second Vatican Council, and he rejoices now that the ideas condemned by Pius X have been quote-unquote approved by Vatican II, and to him it's understandable why traditionalists attack Vatican II. He's more honest than the wanderer. Now, um, and also, too, that this thought just came to me, uh, so I, I, I couldn't develop it. This also is a key of, of, of how the post-conciliar church exercises authority. Well, exercises authority among their own. They, they suspend Father Somerville. But because the new idea is, well, we just try to fill you with the right ideas. We just, we, we exhort, we, 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 we dialogue. And then you will be, you'll, so we'll have your consciousness raised so you know the right thing, and then you will be responsible and do the right thing. This is why the Pope doesn't use his authority, because he's bought into this whole new idea of how authority works. It's Sionism. So we're going to take time for the film. We're going to take a uh, look at two examples of what this latest post-conciliar Sionism, I think we're all set. No, don't, uh, leave it, leave it. Yeah, it's, it stayed on. I didn't know it was going to stay on. Thank you, Randy. Um, we're going to take a quick look. Admittedly, there are some little differences, but the basic spirit is there of the Sion. Um, the first, it's going to, I'm going to talk about uh, the interdenominational aspect of it and also the exaltation of sentiment. The first, I have a film here of the, of the uh, television broadcast of the Hindu ritual at Fatima that took place on May 5th of this year. So we can see what this interfaith religion looks like. 
And the second is, will be World Youth Day in Toronto. This is a film that I took when I was there for my three days of darkness there. Um, of course, it should have been three days of light. Uh, but. So, okay, I think we're ready for this. Thank you. Uh, also, the, um, he's going to be speaking in Portuguese, so I'm going to try to... Right button. See what's going on here? Oh, here we are. Okay, very good. A week away from the May 13th, pre it's, they're saying it ex it's going to present an exclusive ecumenical experience. There are Hindus in Portugal who also revere Fatica and Sikh was there to cover. The call for another day in Radha Krishna Temple. Light and water, energy and nature mark the rhythm of the arati, the morning prayer. Hinduism is the oldest of the great religions. It's characterized by multiple deities, worshipped through a triple dimension of life and sacredness, the creator God, the preserver God, and the God who has the power to destroy. Now the girl's going to say, this is the god Shiva and his wife Parvati. In the center we can see the god Rama. To our white his wife, his wife Sati, and to our left his brother and companion Lakshama. Now we can see Krishna Bhagwan and his consort Radha. The deities are always accompanied by their respective consorts or wives. This is the category they're putting Our Lady in. As a rule, when we address the deities or want to ask for their graces, we address the feminine deity who is also very important to us. About 60 Hindus leave Lisbon with the Chatham, the sign of their foreheads, which shows the wish for good fortune and a noble task. And this is the day dedicated to the greatest of their, their deities. She is called the Most Holy Mother, the Goddess Devi, the deity of nature, who many Portuguese also find in Fatima. And it goes on to say that uh, this, this stems from um, their, their contact with the church in India. I won't translate all of that. As a Hindu who believes that the whole world, or rather all human beings, are members of a global family, it would be natural for me to see any manifestation of God, including Our Lady of Fatima, as a manifestation of the same God. Now we're going to... Now here, you see... I just want to pause here if I can find the pause. <laughs> okay. Now you saw that. Now Rector Guerra said the only people who were in the sanctuary, when he responded to this, the only people who were in the sanctuary were uh, the priest and the, uh, the translator. But here we see these three women coming up offering flowers to their, I mean, they, they're giving it to the statue of Our Lady, but to them, that's not Mary, the mother of God. They're Hinduizing our, our they're Hinduizing Catholicism, and this just represents one of their deities. Now here it is.
Now he's invoking, he's invoking a pagan god at this point. Um, he's, it said there, this is a unique moment in the history of the sanctuary and of devotion itself. The Hindu priest, the Shastri, recites at the altar the Shantipa, the prayer for peace. Now, of course, Guerra said nothing took place on or off the altar. That's how he, he, he was, nothing took place, no rituals performed. As I said, it was just a prayer, it was just a ceremony. So we'll, we'll go on. Oh, here he's just talking about a divine energy here, an energy which permeates the whole place. It has the power to be present here around us. Whenever I come, I feel this vibration. That's what he's talking about. He says the display of this group of Hindus um, is not welcomed by all Catholics, but the rector of the sanctuary explains the differences but underlines the proximity. It is obvious that these civilizations, this is Guerra speaking, and religions are quite different, but I think that there is a common basis in all religions. There is a common basis that, how can I put it, is born from the common humanity we all possess. It's very important that we recognize this common basis because due to the clashes of the difference, we sometimes forget our equality. Thus, such meetings as this give us an occasion. And this uh, man is just saying, you know, um, he's making his face manifest, and I hope, and I respect other people's religions, and I, I respect them, and I hope they respect me. It's, it's a loose translation. So that we all live together harmoniously and meet each other within the principles which are common to all religious confessions. Sionism. This time, the Hindu pilgrims are received as if they were an embassy, an unheard of gesture that can be understood as an invitation for other visits. Here's the Bishop of Lierre Fatima. We don't want to be fundamentalists. We don't want that. But we want to be sincere, honest, and to communicate by osmosis the fruitfulness of our rituals so that we may produce fruits. I'm pleased to meet them. And here is where they are presented with the, the, the shawls of their Hindu uh, book, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, uh, Bhagavad Gita, whose basic message is that all, nothing is real. Strawberry fields forever. Nothing is real. And here they're just talking about the fact that the, uh, the Hindu, um, a Hindu high priest came and it was on, and this guest book was signed on the same page as John Paul, and they saw that the Hindus see that as, as very, very meaningful. So we can see then that this, 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 um, I like to show this too because people claim that this this either never happened, or it wasn't really a Hindu you know a Hindu ceremony. Uh, at this point, we're going to move on to World Youth Day, which is now that was uh, the, um, the whole business of interdenom. You can keep. Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, oh gosh, I'm hitting the wrong button. Um, what you're going to see first is what's called the catechesis session. Now, if you were looking at World Youth Day at, at the program, you would say, catechesis, oh, this is great. They're going to get catechism in the morning. They're going to get catechism in the morning. This is going to be terrific. Um, this is what the catechism, it's in a church, and you're going to see that the children are, are, are dressed as if they're going to a beach or to a picnic with, with you know, a highly inappropriate uh, dress, 
and immodesty, and they're talking to each other the way that we that, that as loud as I'm talking now inside the church, and this is encouraged or at least permitted by the church leaders, by the bishop who's there. There was a cardinal there. This is the type of catechesis they're getting. But the main point is the exaltation of sentiment. You bring all the young people together so they can be with one another and, and, and learn the joy of being one another and the joy of, of the Pope. And John Paul II, we love you. John Paul II, we love you. Days and days on end. And once the youth do this, then they're going to be charged up with a, with, a, with, with a love of their faith and a love of humanity, and then they're going to go out and be the salt and life of the world, even though they don't have a clue of what the Catholic faith is. So, here we are. This is in a Catholic church. The Blessed Sacrament is there. Well, providing it's valid, you know, but the Blessed Sacrament is there. This is the youth leader. Now this is in the church. This they're waiting for mass to begin. Now this was not just at this church. This was at we visited a number of churches. This was the same story everywhere. This walking around, this this casual, chatting away, party, party, party. This is the catechesis. Oh, there's the blessed. There's the tabernacle anyway with the sanctuary light lit. Nobody's paying any attention to it. This is the catechesis session. This is where they're learning what Catholicism is. See these, this, this young couple here having this cute little... This, I mean, this is a sampling of what you see the whole time you're there and what the television doesn't show you. EWTN doesn't show you this. This guy just drumming on the... There's the altar girl. Look at this girl carrying the, the, the book. She's in a cardinal, or a bishop at least, another bishop. Hansel and Gretel as the uh, altar girl and altar boy. There's the girl singing. I mean, look at, this, look at the way they're dressed. This is the kiss of peace, of course. I had to film this. This went on for quite a while. Now this was a, this is a, a, a missionary group. This is a priest and a bunch of brothers. But this is what they got all weekend: upbeat rock and roll, make you feel good. This now the Pope is on stage now with this rock band playing next to him. When you're there, this is what you hear all day long. You USA, you USA. It's a Bruce Springsteen concert. Now, I want to pause here for a minute. Uh, I don't remember, if, I don't know if it was a speech by Bishop Williamson or, um, he, or if he told me this on the telephone, but when he was talking to Cardinal Hoyas, the three bishops were there. Um, the, 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 the Society of St. Pius X bishops were saying, you know, uh, Your Eminence, the church is a disaster right now. I mean, it's, everything's falling apart. And Hoyas said, oh, no, this is in year 2000. Oh, no, things are, things are doing very well. And they said, well, you know, can you give, me a, can you give us an example? And World Youth Day was going on in Rome. And Cardinal Hoya said, look at all these young people coming to see the Pope. This is hope for the church. The church is vibrant. This is what they're calling, the Vatican is calling a vibrant hope for the church. Another thing, too, I didn't tell you about the catechesis session, was is that they have the young people share with each other. 
how the young people share and 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 um, and how I am salt and how I am light because that was the theme. Uh, you are the salt of the. And this one girl. So we're supposed to talk about the way we are light to others, and the way and people who are as light to us. And someone who is really light to me is my youth group leader Ted. He just like walks in the room and just like feels it with light. I and mean, he's just like so awesome. I and mean, he's just like so cool. <laughs> this is the level. This is the level of what these poor and these and I and when I wrote when I wrote this up to I tried to be very kind to these poor young people because they're being deprived, they're being defrauded, they're giving this, they're given this, this exaltation of emotion and sentiment as if it were the Catholic faith. So here we go. Pope's on stage with this throbbing, see, this throbbing rock music. This is what you see when you're on the ground. Well, she's not on the ground. But. And it's constant this, this constant shouting. All day, this milling around, all this idle time. Now this was a, a rock and roll gospel dance bit that they're given to the youth in order to fill them up with Catholicism. I think, uh, now this guy here, the, the man, is supposed to be Christ in this. I don't know who she is. But you can see with this that this blend of spirituality and sensuality, it sells. It sells. Okay, now, right, I, the next what you're going to see, you're not going to believe. This was a full-blown rock concert at World Youth Day by a Christian rock band. This is World Youth Day. This is where the fraternity of St. Peter and Bishop Rafan are taking young people this summer. They're supposed to be traditional groups. Bishop Rafan. YMCA. It's a homosexual anthem. This was a scheduled event at World Youth Day. Scheduled event. Right next to this is the vocations room with all the booths of the Jesuits and the Franciscans. Now you'll see, at this point, the young people are jumping up on stage. They, they were animals. Absolute animals. This is World Youth Day. Mary-like standards of modesty, you can see all over. They were body surfing the, the, the boys and the girls. Hands all over them, body surfing them. Now we're at Downsview Airfield on Saturday. This is the Vesper service. <laughs> I am not kidding. This is right out of Evelyn Wall. And he and he believes this is this is a sign of hope for the youth. 
Again, rock and this this is this is part of Vesper's music. This. Or just before Vespers, but it was just rock and roll all day long. Now this is going into the night. About 150,000, I forget the number, young men and women, mixed sexes, out all night on this big field. And I, st I stayed there too, I wrote it up. I was, I was there all night. I got two hours sleep. But see, spirituality and sensuality, good feelings... This is, this is what it is. Nothing for the mind. No Catholic doctrine. But I go here. I'm filled with the love and enthusiasm. Now this is, this is about 2 o'clock in the morning. This is how they're going to be dressed for Sunday Mass the next morning. Sunday Mass. For the Pope's Mass. And this is encouraged by the Pope because he does it every World Youth Day. Okay, we're coming to the end. You can pull up the lights. So we see that this, this um, manifestation of the Sion that I'm talking about, especially ecumenism and uh, the exaltation of sentiment, it's nothing for the future. Nothing for the future. And Pius X nailed it so magnificently. He nailed it so magnificently that it's Pius X we follow. And I'm going to close by quoting one line from the, from the letter against the Sion, which you all know, and it is the line that's going to give us, give us heart and give us the courage to fight. When we fight these errors, I have to remember they're already condemned, but they've impregnated the, the minds of the highest leaders of the church, but that's not what we worry about. We follow Pope St. Pius X, who said in this apostolic letter against the Sion, the true friends of the people are neither the revolutionaries nor the innovators. They are the traditionalists. Thank you for your attention.